In a new account of early English America, our speaker offers an enlightening history of plantation management in the Chesapeake colonies of Virginia and Maryland. Her scope ranges quite a long distance in time from the founding of Jamestown to the close of the Seven Years' War and the end of the, quote, golden age of colonial Chesapeake agriculture. Her narrative incorporates stories about planters themselves, including family dynamics and the relationships those planters had with enslaved workers. An accomplished scholar of early America, Lorena Walsh was for 27 years a historian at the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation. She's the author or co-author of several books, including Robert Cole's World, Agriculture and Society in Early Maryland, From Calabar to Carter's Grove, The History of a Virginia Slave Community, and most recently, Motives of Honor, Pleasure and Profit, Plantation Management in the Colonial Chesapeake, 1607 through, 16, through 1763. So please join me in a warm VHS welcome for Lorena Walsh, who will speak to us about Motives of Honor, Pleasure and Profit, Plantation Management in the Colonial Chesapeake. Well, thank you and good afternoon. I'm here today to talk a little bit about some of the materials in my most recent book. And for this audience, I'm going to be focusing on the 18th century and on Virginia. Uh, the book was uh, written uh, partly as a text for the public, for scholars, and for museum goers, and where did the title come from? Uh, the phrases were used by a, an Englishman named Robert Winter, who in 1635 was writing a promotional tract to encourage people to settle in the colony of Maryland that Lord Baltimore had just founded. And he used the uh, idea of honor, pleasure, and profit, uh, a combination of phrases, at least the pleasure and profit I've recently learned were phrases that Greek and Roman writers used when they described the life, uh, life of the farmer. Uh, Winter focused uh, his account on how these terms would relate to a new colony of Maryland. Uh, many people just talked about profit and pleasure, but Winter uh, talked about honor as well, which he defined as enhancing the power and the prosperity of Maryland, of converting the Indians to Christianity, that one would increase one's family fortunes through honorable accumulation and uh, in a sort of prescient term, he said, if you went to settle in the Chesapeake, you would become founders of a nation. He was thinking of a colony, but of course the descendants did become founders of a new nation. Then he talked about pleasure. And for 1635, these are perhaps somewhat simple goals, but for people in England who could not own land or had very little land, they were important. Owning land was the first uh, 
item of pleasure that Winter mentioned, raising a plenty of food, being able to go hunting and gather fish from your own estate. Eating meat on Sundays was something that people might be able to do in the Chesapeake, but could not necessarily do in England. Enjoy a good wood fire on a cold day in your own house. Have servants who could work for you and enjoy friendly neighborhood, which Winters said was living in harmony and interacting with people living nearby who shared like goals. Uh, but profit was really the big motivation for moving from England to the colonies. And in the 1630s, Englishmen were thinking that indentured servants uh, who gentlemen would import to work for them would produce food crops for a handsome subsistence, a comfortable living, and also would produce export crops that could be traded for necessities imported from England and for amenities, things you don't have to have, but are for nice to have. And very perceptively, uh, Winter noted that for people who did not have a lot of money and wanted to integrate, the best of this business was at the first. So people of modest means who came to the Chesapeake early did much better than those who came later when it was more crowded. But we know there was a problem with this happy story. Uh, the Chesapeake was a rather deadly place uh, with malaria, dysentery, uh, many diseases, and a lot of immigrants ended up in an early grave rather than realizing their dreams. But uh, early on, in the six, by 1612, the Virginians had discovered that tobacco might offer a way out, a way up the ladder to prosperity as a crop in high demand. This tobacco growing was really an Atlantic enterprise. Uh, tobacco was being grown in southern Europe. Uh, it was being grown in Africa. It's quickly being grown in South America and North America. And people had to learn to bring together uh, different techniques. In the area of the Chesapeake, uh, Native Americans were raising both tobacco and corn, crops very suited to the environment, and they were doing it with uh, the methods of girdling trees, uh, moving your, your fields around, and doing the cult cultivation with hoes. Uh, the Portuguese had imported tobacco to Africa, and by the very early 1600s, Africans were growing, growing it, as well as smoking it, as this picture shows, so that when Africans were imported to work in Virginia, many of them came already knowing how to raise tobacco. Uh, so, uh, Europeans were also uh, contributing information and techniques about how to grow the crop. This is a Dutch tobacco farm about 1690. 
There are things that people from Virginia will recognize, the tobacco hanging in the barn here, people out harvesting, hanging the tobacco on scaffolds. But each country had its own little twists. This tobacco house with its funny gables does not look like a Virginia one. They are hauling the cut tobacco in with a wagon rather than carrying it on their shoulders. And here they're using the seed bed uh, rather than uh, putting it out in the uh, tobacco patch out in the field. At the same time, uh, by the 1620s and 30s, they are growing tobacco in the West Indies. This is Martinique, uh, probably in the 1650s. A different kind of drying shed. There are the tobacco leaves hanging there, and they're processing it, uh, twisting it up in rolls. A different processing method, but many signs of common culture. So what these 17th century immigrants were doing, uh, we now term farm building. They were accumulating estates through the hard work and the hard work of their servants. Uh, to start off, they had to girdle trees or cut them down in order to have fields to grow things in. They had to grow corn for food, which they were doing in hills rather than using plows, because it's a lot easier in ground that you've just maybe left the tree stumps standing in. They had to put up structures like this tobacco barn to house their crops. Uh, they had to, uh, in the Chesapeake style, the tobacco house is much bigger than the family dwelling, and they adopted the labor-saving method of putting up worm fences, didn't require any nails, around the crops. Uh, they fenced the crops in rather than the livestock, which was out ranging around. They had to add cattle that would produce, provide both meat and milk. They, of course, had hogs. They planted orchards to provide themselves with cider. And in addition to building houses, they would have had kitchen gardens and poultry. So the 17th century immigrants who arrive through hard work, clear the land, get crops in, make them productive, Build, set, uh, build shelters for themselves and livestock. And this was the method by which they build up their estates. Uh, we find that although uh, if the typical immigrant did not accumulate a vast amount of money the way some of the promotional writers promised them, that they really did better than they would have done had they remained in England or followed almost any trade that was available to them. So it was a rational thing to do if you lived. Uh, here are some actual figures of the amounts of tobacco produced on plantations. And by the late 1640s, uh, they had already, learning by doing, gotten from people raising 150, 250 pounds per year to over 1,000. And it was amount that is slowly increasing over time. 
Now shifting to the next generation and into the 18th century, uh, my focus here is on the large planters, people who began a privileged life, and people who were not generally not immigrants, but were one or more generations born in Virginia or Maryland. So how did their estate building strategies differ from those of the immigrants who were starting from scratch? Well, to be a planter, you obviously need land to plant. And privileged planters born in the colonies are going to inherit land. Uh, their parents have done well enough to accumulate land, usually enough to divide up among children. So they had enough to start out with. And if they wanted more, uh, the next likely thing they would do was patent land. Uh, usually the big planters, if not on the Virginia Council or in the uh, assembly themselves, had relatives who were. So it was relatively easy to get a grant of land further in the West. And usually they managed not to pay very much for it either. <laughs> so then that finally, if those means didn't give them enough and there was a really attractive land available, they might also purchase it. But inheritance was the first way, patenting the second, purchasing the third. They also needed labor. Uh, to produce tobacco to make a profit off the land. And by this time, uh, they also inherited some workers from their parents. They could be either servants or slaves, but they increasingly became slaves. If they did not acquire enough through inheritance, then they had three other options. They could buy indentured European servants, they could buy new African slaves, or they could buy slaves locally in Virginia. So what did these three options offer? Uh, by, we find, it's sort of a recent finding uh, by a number of scholars that while there were not a lot of enslaved Africans in Virginia prior to the 1670s, those who were had been imported, bought up by the very biggest planters, people who were in a position to make a choice had made a choice, and they considered slaves serving for life more profitable than servants. So by the 1680s, where I'm starting to focus, most servants that they bought, they have got to be either artisans, supply things like uh, tailors, blacksmiths, shoemakers, or they were overseers of plantations, but they were through with servants as field workers. By new Africans, if you suddenly say, all right, I want to start a new plantation, I need 10 or 12 adult workers was the most, uh, the most certain way of doing it because you knew, planters knew when the British slave traders were going to show up sometime in the summertime with the cargo of Africans and if you had enough money you could likely get them. Uh, but there was something different about the African slave trade than 
all the other arrangements for getting land or for getting servants. That is, the slave traders operating in Britain wanted either bills of exchange, a check on a merchant in Great Britain, or they wanted cash. Uh, cash colonists tended not to have, and bills of exchange required that you uh, ship your tobacco directly to Britain. So only people with sort of international collect connections and a lot of resources were in a position to buy African slaves. Uh, the other possibility was to buy slaves locally. The disadvantage, generally, slaves were sold when estates were broken up or when somebody left the country or became bankrupt. These are things you can't predict. So you would simply have to wait around for an estate sale to be advertised if you were going to try to add to your labor force this way. Uh, the plus side, of course, was that uh, slaves sold in Virginia or Maryland to settle an estate, generally you had a year to pay for them. Uh, and so the, the owners who were selling were extending a year's credit. And if you needed to put up a bond or a mortgage, you could get a, a friend or neighbor locally to stand as security for you. So it was a lot easier for people who weren't so well connected as you know, people like Carters or Burwells or Randolphs to acquire slaves by this means. Among the other things that 18th century planters wanted, big planters wanted, were powerhouses, uh, starting with somewhat modest structures. This is Fairfield in Gloucester County, built in the 1690s to Charles uh, Carter of Cleves, much more handsome mansion of the 1750s, Westover, which, with which you're all familiar. Uh, they, elite planters were also wanting a big house to reaffirm their social standing as, and as a place to entertain, which made building up all the components of the estate somewhat more expensive. So what were the strategies big planters used for producing crops that would provide income to do all these things? Uh, one strategy was to have a ho the home plantation would be the m very diversified. There, if you had craftsmen, uh, car carpenters, coopers, blacksmiths, perhaps millers, uh, people supporting the great house would be working on the home quarter, the home plantation. And this was where, if you wanted to experiment with things like wheat or indigo, uh, unusual crops, it would be done under the supervision of an estate manager or the owner himself. And then you would have, they began establishing ancillary uh, little plantations that were basically work camps where slaves grew tobacco, corn, occasionally wheat, raised a lot of livestock. Their job was uh, simply to produce crops, whereas all the 
fancy, more diversified activities are confined to the home quarter. Now, increasingly in the 1730s, 40s, and 50s, another strategy was to start planting tobacco on some of that land they had acquired in the West. So often slaves are sent to work new quarters uh, in the Piedmont or on the south side where the land is fresh, unfarmed, and they can produce a lot more tobacco. The general uh, set up for managing estates, uh, the biggest planters who had multiple plantations usually had an estate manager who might be a middling or even sort of close to big planter living in the neighborhood who wanted extra income, at least uh, a fairly educated person who could keep accounts, who would see to the sale of crops like grain, like corn and wheat, and who would keep an eye on the overseers who were in charge of slaves, on keeping the slaves working on the various quarters. Overseers ranged from sort of illiterate thugs to almost young middling planters who would need to earn an income until they inherit land and slaves from their parents, but they have a not they don't enjoy a particularly good reputation. Uh, by the 1730s, 40s, and 50s, uh, large planters maintained or increased their revenues by growing extra corn and wheat. And we'll see why they did that in a minute. And they did that by it stopping using just hoes, and they began using plows for ground preparation in the spring and for weeding. This enabled one worker to do, to cultivate more land, produce both tobacco and grain. Uh, without adding in the plowing, they wouldn't have been able to do that. And the course of tobacco crops, the numbers are not important, but basically since the 1680s was the high point in production throughout the Chesapeake. Uh, planters had learned all the tricks they could about how to cultivate more faster to get new kinds of uh, tobacco strains, how to organize work. That was the high point. Then, as you know, all the fresh land has been cropped once, yields begin to fall. There are no more technological breakthroughs in tobacco. Uh, you have wars in this period when that curtailed at least what tobacco could be exported. Uh, this low point is when you get the Inspection Act introduced, where uh, very bad quality tobacco was destroyed and what was actually marketed goes down. Then after people uh, figure out, well, how, what will pass inspection, uh, the amount produced goes up a bit, but it never got back to the high point of the 1680s. So if planters were going to maintain revenues, they, began, they had to produce grains, and they began doing this. Uh, this uh, is the barrels of corn produced per worker, and again, simply the idea is up in the 1680s, five barrels per worker would 
feed the owner's family, they would feed the slaves, it would provide a little food for livestock, but no surplus. At 10 barrels, uh, there was definitely a surplus for sale, and certainly by the 1740s, uh, surplus is being produced. Uh, wheat is much less important than corn, uh, up before until the Seven Years' War, and these are not very spectacular crops. They were only growing small amounts, but you can see by the time of the Seven Years' War, uh, some wheat is being produced, most of which ends up being exported rather than consumed in the Chesapeake. Marketing strategies. Uh, one thing to do was to brand quality tobacco. Uh, in the area of the York and the Rappahannock Rivers, between the two, uh, a very good high strain of tobacco, the sweet-scented was being grown, popular in the London market. So if you could grow that strain, you wanted to promote it uh, to hope to get a higher price. In the area of Richmond West, uh, along the James River, uh, the Orinoco tobacco being produced was also very high quality. Uh, so that was, you would also emphasize that. Uh, big planters tended to consign or to ship at their own risk their tobacco to merchants in England because generally prices are higher in England and if they were willing to take the risk, they should do better. Generally, they consigned to London, even if they lost money, because they wanted all the fashionable goods, the latest fashionable silver and clo clothing and furniture to be gotten from London. So they would do that. But they began also consigning tobacco to alternative markets in Bristol and Liverpool because they discovered that these were areas where the textile industry is starting and the metalworking industries are starting, and it was there that they used the proceeds of the tobacco to buy cheap tools and cheap cloth. Liverpool is sort of the Walmart of uh, shopping areas in England, and so they cut costs for maintaining their workforces while getting fancy goods from London. And increasingly also, they would sell in the country when the price was high. There were a lot more merchants coming in uh, sometimes to get a load of tobacco offering, imprudently offering high prices. So planters would sell in the country when that looked more profitable. And the idea was to use the sales from the corn and wheat to cover local expenses, so instead of having to take some of the proceeds of what you'd ship to England to cover paying the overseers, paying storekeepers here, uh, they would use the proceeds of the corn and wheat to pay off local artisans and storekeepers and overseers and also to pay for the sugar and rum that they were importing for the West Indies. So they divided market. Uh, what were their financial strategies and what about the issue of debt, which people are often discussing how horribly indebted planters were? Uh, I found that this does become a problem after the end of the Seven Years' War, but from the actual account books, 
that I've examined, and it seems much less to be the case in the 18th century. Uh, I mentioned earlier that for people who were buying African slaves, they had to have cash or bills of exchange, which they usually did not have enough of. Uh, since the big planters are inheriting enough land to start out with, for many of them, the one time they go into debt is to buy slaves. They have to get credit from English merchants to finance this purchase because it requires so much cash. Uh, I see things that sort of look maybe equivalent to the idea that people today, the one thing they're going to borrow money for, for sure, is to buy a house. For an 18th century elite planter, buying slaves was the equivalent, and they were willing to go into debt to do that. And the result was if they died young, then the estate would be heavily indebted. But if they lived long enough, the slaves would produce enough to pay for themselves and to pay off the debts. And after that, I think most big planters really tended to try to balance revenues and expenditures. That is, they shipped their tobacco to England. They went along with an order for goods. They weren't quite sure how much they were going to get for it or how much the goods were going to cost, but they did try to balance the two. And if they discovered that the goods cost more than they thought or the tobacco brought less, then most responsible planters would cut back on the next year's invoice or say, well, you know, don't send me everything I ordered unless uh, I have tobacco to cover it. Uh, beyond that, I have to say most 18th century planters were not particularly good bookkeepers. Uh, many, a lot of them, uh, and Landon, uh, a list of Landon Carter's office proved this, practiced the pigeonhole method of accounting. That is, they got their uh, a list of what the tobacco uh, was made, the tobacco shipped, and the uh, account that come back from the factory in England, bundled it up, stick it in there, my land records are here. Uh, dealings with merchants are in this pigeonhole, and they never put the whole thing together. So planters tended not to really have the big picture until accounting, better accounting, some started better accounting after the revolution. So basically they were thinking about balancing what they got from the tobacco that they shipped to England with what they uh, imported from England, and if that evened out uh, that they thought they were doing well and did not worry about fancier cost accounting. Uh, Planter, the, the way planters worked, large planters worked out uh, varied greatly. There were a few uh, people who totally abused credit, who mortgaged land and slaves to two or three different people, who really had no intention of ever paying off their debts and thought if they paid interest on them, that was doing good. Uh, but the financial records show a larger range of people. Uh, Robert King Carter uh, is perhaps 
is an example of some of the more responsible, enterprising large planters who did not just acquired vast amounts of land, bought up hundreds of slaves, produced vast quantities of tobacco, corn, and wheat, but also uh, had big cash reserves in England, purchased bank stock, and indeed became a lender. Uh, Daniel Park Custis would be another person who fit in this category, who not only were balancing income, income and outgo, but were actually accumulating cash and were using that to lend to other planters. So there were people who were extremely solvent and were becoming lenders within the colony themselves. Uh, moving towards sort of the other end, uh, John Baylor II is an example of someone who made very creative use of credit. Uh, he started, he would consign tobacco to merchants in London. Uh, he would get them to lend him money uh, for, adva advance him money for more tobacco than he had shipped. He would get several years worth shipment of goods on this credit, and then he would change the person to whom he shipped the tobacco without paying off the first merchant. Uh, then he would repeat the process, uh, shipping them tobacco for a while, getting in advance, and uh, he was able to continue that. Uh, but he didn't just do it with the London merchants. He was also shipping tobacco to Bristol and to Liverpool. And he managed the same scenario there, that he was also borrowing from the Bristol merchants and borrowing from the Liverpool merchants. And apparently, they were far enough separated, they did not realize the total amount that he had borrowed. I mean, it's sort of like uh, a person today that has six credit cards all maxed out. Uh, this enabled Baylor actually to import uh, blooded racehorses and carriages and various uh, indulgences which he could not have managed uh, had he been uh, going anywhere near trying to balance income without go. Although, so long as the economy was prosperous, uh, he had not reached the point that he was really endangering the estate that his children would inherit. Uh, he could, by sequentially paying off the debts and cutting back a little bit, have managed to pay things off. So I, I don't see Planter, I see planter debt as being more a life cycle thing, more strategic for most people up until the end of the Seven Years' War. But there were problems looming that once you get a war and a political crisis uh, led many planting families into big trouble. Uh, the first thing was second, third generation uh, planting families began to feel that they were entitled uh, to their custom standard of living. Uh, I guess today you
hear of or know of people who had a big house, many cars, were used to taking expensive vacations and eating out at uh, expensive restaurants and then the housing market crashed and the stock market crashed and somebody lost their job, but they couldn't quite bring themselves to cut back on the things that they could because they could use their credit card and hope things would get better soon. And 18th century elite planting families were no different. They felt they were entitled to the big house, uh, lots of food, being able to entertain all sorts of people, having a carriage with horses and uh, pe people dedicated to driving those uh, horses, big libraries, and some of them were just not willing to cut back. And of course, the fact that when times are good, you can find the British merchants in London, Bristol, Liverpool, who are willing to extend more credit than they should. Uh, so it's a looming problem if things get bad. The other problem is I see a lot of escalation, increases in the idea of what people thought should be an inheritance for their children. Now, around 1700, uh, a large planter who's accumulated a lot of land, has some servants, some enslaved laborers, will think, well, he was doing well to give to the sons land, and if a little bit of that was cleared, and a working farm on it, and a tobacco barn, and some sort of a rudimentary house, and a few workers that he could pass on, that was a good inheritance. And even 1720s and 1730s, this was still the norm, and fathers still might be at the end of their careers building a big house for themselves, but it was, off to the, it was up to the sons to build their own powerhouses when they accumulate the assets to do it. But by the uh, 1750s and 1760s, uh, you begin to see parents say, well, the son, when he gets married, should have a big working plantation, sometimes 20 up to 40 adult working enslaved hands, and they ought to have a new fashionable mansion right when they get married along with an expensive education in England for the sons. And uh, I think this was one of the real problems that uh, parents, elite parents are suddenly not just setting themselves up in a grand style, but they think they have to give their children everything and it be ready for them by the time they're ready to get married. And this was really putting, beginning to put a strain on the kind of incomes the Chesapeake planters were getting. And finally, uh, they were, people were living longer and they were having more children and there seems a lot of these large mid-18th century planters had two or three wives and ended up with 10, 12, 15, some of them more than 20 children to provide for and if you're Trying to give them that much, uh, you've got real, real problems. And I think that this is one of the things that contributed to 
the problems that large planters ran into in the 1760s and 70s. Well, the 18th century elite planters whose houses we all love to go see in Garden Week uh, were <laughs> ideally uh, supposed to be well-read in classical literature, educated people. Uh, this was from a manual that a West Indian planter wrote about what you should be. They were supposed to know at least the rudiments of science so they could understand how things work. They were supposed to promote improved agriculture. They were realized they maybe did things better in England and perhaps you should study how to do grain farming and stock farming the way the English did it. Oh, they were supposed to be well-skilled in mechanics. So you have people like Landon Carter designing water gates and cow feeding stalls, the idea that you can observe and make better implements, better machines. Uh, planters were supposed to be something of an architect, and indeed we know that many of the mid-18th century planters had a, were designing those great houses. They were supposed to have enough medical skills to at least uh, treat their enslaved workers, and they were supposed to know accounting and the arts of economy, something that most did not practice. <laughs> uh, so, you know, what, what were the achievements of 18th century elite planters? Uh, did they profit? Yes, they did. They, achieved, they built up estates, increasingly magnificent estates. They were able to manage their workforce in such a way that they either maintained or they increased the amount of revenue that workers produced per year. This continued to go up until the end of the Seven Years' War. So yes, they profited. Uh, did they enjoy pleasure? Uh, certainly in, the, in terms of external trappings that they, they did, and you can really see the redef a real redefinition of pleasure from Robert Winter in the 1630s who's talking about having a warm fire and a house over your head and enough food to people who are living in Westovers and Sabine Halls and uh, entertaining on a very grand scale with uh, fashionable furniture and carriages and a very different world. But, uh, you know, what, what about the question of honor? Uh, yes, uh, they did. The Virginia certainly did contribute greatly to the power and prestige of England, becoming the most populous of the mainland colonies, contributing a lot to the English coffers. Uh, they did not know, but uh, they're on the verge of becoming founders of an independent nation, but I, it's on the other two areas that Winter mentions it today, uh, we can, cannot uh, to totally approve of their achievements. Uh, the rec their record with Native Am Americans is decidedly abysmal, and really uh, the worst part was 
their reliance on slave labor, their total buying into the institution of slavery. Uh, honorable accumulation, by their, by their definition, uh, there was nothing wrong with uh, profiting handsomely off of the labor of enslaved people, but uh, today we have a rather different judgment. So our picture of the great planters is somewhat more mixed. We still look at all the achievements of a well-rounded Renaissance man or woman and admire those attributes. We admire their leadership qualities, but their involvement with slavery really tainted all of that. Okay, I am done and <laughs> ready for questions. I have one, one back here to, um, I wonder if you would comment a bit more about indentured servants. Who were they and what led them into indenture and then where did they go when they finished up? Okay, indentured servants came, they left from London. Uh, they came, many came from the London area or the Bristol area, but they, a lot had been born further out in the countryside, migrated to the cities looking for work, perhaps didn't find it, decided their best chance was to indenture, agree to work for four, five, six, seven years in the colonies uh, in return for payment of passage. Uh, they, we generally think they were either farmers or artisans or unskilled laborers. Uh, they weren't all, you know, vagrants and orphans, although there were some of those. Uh, once they got here, as Winter said, early, the best of the business was early on, and servants who came in the 1630s, 40s, and 50s, if they lived, which is a big if, were often able to get land of their own and to begin that farm building process by which they build up reasonable estates. Uh, by the 1670s, the land and good land in the Tidewater is beginning to be pretty much taken up and tobacco prices fall and generally indentured servants are ending up as tenant farmers or laborers uh, moving to the frontier and, you know, once this word gets back to England, the numbers who agree to come drops considerably. Yes, I wanted to ask more about, uh, you uh, mentioned about barring for slaves, mm -hmm. and I wondered about the source of that barring. Uh, uh, my understanding from what you said was that they would gain credit, of course, from their agents in, uh, on the sale of tobacco in London or Liverpool or Bristol, but uh, against which they would order uh, English goods and have shipped to America. But, uh, and then you said something about bills of exchange, but where did the money come from for the borrowing of the, uh, to buy slaves so the, in the cash that they needed? Okay, uh, it was partly self-financed in that generally uh, you had 
even if you're buying on credit, you still have to put up cash, hard cash, or you have to have a, an open line of credit with a British merchant for about half the price of the slave. So that's going to be maybe 10 pounds or so, and you're going to pay, oh, another 10 pounds or so per person. Uh, the British merchant, the British slave traders wanted all of that back in the end of another year. So basically, they wanted a year's credit, which the British merchants were willing to put up. Uh, usually, I'm seeing a lot of planters refinancing their slave purchase. That is, they borrow money from somebody like Robert King Carter, who's very big in this, and they mortgage their land and slaves to him. Carter transfers some of his surplus assets. They pay off the British slave trader. They pay, pay off the British merchant. And then they have a longer time to pay back the Carters of the world. And if they don't, uh, local people are, well, are much more willing to take a mortgage on land and a mortgage on slaves because they can simply you know, manage that land and slaves for themselves. So it's often a double step. Get the credit from the slave traders or from British merchants and then refinance locally. I have a question. Uh, here I am. Thank you for your talk and your fascinating, fascinating illustrations, by the way. My question has to do with properties in the Chesapeake area. Do you know of any instances that did not involve slave workers that were successful farms? Uh, through through the 1680s, you can find a few people who uh, made, the, made the choice to farm only with indentured servants. But that, that became increasingly rare. And certainly, uh, what uh, another Virginia scholar, John Coombs, has found is that all the... Uh, Almost all the people who were on the council, who were justices of peace or sheriff or burgesses, the people who were in power as well as having lots of money, opted for slavery and opted for slaves early. Uh, could they have done something else? Yes, there are a few examples. Uh, did working indentured servants pay as well? Apparently not. Or it seems hard to believe that all these people would have, have opted to get into a, a slave system. Well, I'm thinking about your body of work, and I don't know anything quite like it. It seems to me the attention to detail, the skill, the hard work, the uh, communal kind of feeling that has gone into it, all the cooperation. And so every time some, you write something new, it seems to me, oh, I, I think, oh yeah, this is the, only a master could do this, and this is the masterpiece. 
and whether it's a art new article, I'm just buttering her up, but this is all really, really true, uh, whether it's a new article or a book, say, starting from Robert Cole's World, even, which is just a wonderful book. So my question to you is, uh, I think this is a masterpiece. You're a master. Is this the masterpiece? And my real question is, what are you, do you think of it that way? Or uh, what next? What are you working on now? Okay, well, let me, do, I can do, answer that with two questions. Uh, I mean, this, what's somewhat different about my work from people who have spent most of their time teaching in universities is that this was done for a museum as part of a museum team. Uh, many of the, the things that, the material that went into Robert Cole's world, for example, could not have been assembled without many scholars working on long-term projects, pulling together records, uh, developing big biographical files. I mean, I could not have done what I did had I worked by myself, and if as members of museum teams we had not had the support of the National Endowment for the Humanities to work on these long-term projects. Uh, for me, what next? Uh, I had the original uh, plan for this book was to uh, work from 1607 to 1820. And indeed, I have uh, done most of the research for the story of the revolutionary period through the War of 1812. And at some point, as I start revising the text, I realized this was clearly two volumes. So the book is volume one, and I'm now working on 1765 to 1820 for Virginia and Maryland with actually a lot more accounts, because planters did keep a lot more records as time went on. To what extent, if any, was there primogeniture in Virginia and Maryland in the colonial time? Uh, there, well, what, what there, more than primogeniture, which occasionally happened, but most, most people, I think, felt they had enough that they could distribute some estate to all their children. Uh, there was no sense of little sense of estate that you had to maintain the estate by giving it all to the eldest son, as was common in England. But what was very common in Virginia, less so in uh, Maryland, was the use of entail, uh, where the land, certain tracts of land, were entailed on the male heir and the first son of the, of the male heir who inherited. So. People like the, the Carters were very big in entail, a number of other prominent families, so that an awful lot of land in Virginia was not just tied up in these big estates, but it was uh, tied up in legal arrangements which, which labeled how it was going to be distributed, and it was, took an act of the legislature to be able to break that and sell it. And in Virginia, too, uh, for a period, they were also entailing slaves. 
so that a, fa a father said, all right, uh, son A gets this tract of land and a list of, lists of names of a group of slaves, and they and their children and children's children were supposed to stay in the same line that inherited the land. Uh, by about two generations, it created all sorts of prob problems and was, became less common. But the big estate builders were trying to tie up property in this way and making sure that spendthrift sons could not dispose of the estate or the enslaved workers. Before slavery got uh, a big hold on, in the economics of the South, was there much resistance by, say, the clergy or any other group to this idea of enslaving people and having it become a, a major economic thing? Uh, I think what's surprising is how little there was. I mean, there are a couple of Anglican clergymen uh, Godwin was one, uh, here and there, but there seemed to be, it's amazing how little questioning there seems to have been of the system. Of course, the uh, Spanish and Portuguese were already doing this, and English mariners started capturing cargoes of enslaved people going to an Iberian colony and selling them, and they were just... Most people accepted them as articles of commerce and, you know, you know, we can sort of do what we want and figure out how to run a system where you have people who have no rights. And it's just mind-boggling how little questioning there seemed to have been. And even, you know, many, most of the Anglican clergymen, maybe they come over and say, well, gee, I'm a little uncomfortable with this. And, Three years later, they've got a glebe farm, and they just bought 10 African slaves and uh, married a woman who, uh, a Virginia woman who brought some more slaves as her dowry, and, you know, they're just going tobacco like mad and seem to have totally bought into it. I really enjoyed your presentation and your lecture. Was not um, most of the indenture servants um, prisoners that came over and acquired slaves? Uh, most of the servants that ended up in Maryland and Virginia were voluntary servants in the sense that they either consented or their parents consented or they appear to have consented to get on that ship, although there are you know, stories of kidnapping and people being gotten drunk and knocked over the head and suddenly waking up and you're uh, caught up in uh, being indentured for a number of years. But most of, them, most of them were people who made this choice that they wanted to better themselves that way. I guess it's basi uh, basically 1690s. You begin to get many more servants coming from Ireland, which is a you know a place where there's lots of 
economic problems. And in the 1710s, uh, there were a, a number of uh, Scots who were defeated and were shipped over as actually military prisoners, but much less than, say, the West Indies. <laughs> 